Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, some great summer reading. My first guests are Mark Stevens and Annalyn Swan. They're the co-authors of the riveting biography, Francis Bacon Revelations. It's a broad-ranging look at the British artist's life, work, and plenty more. It was recently published by Knopf. Depending on the format, IndieBound and Amazon offer it for $18 to $60. We'll have links to both sites on manpodcast.com. Stevens and Swan's 2005 biography of Willem de Kooning, one of my all-time favorite art books, won a Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. On the second segment, Catherine Brown joins me to discuss Henri Matisse. But first, Mark Stevens and Annalyn Swan, after the break. Point of Departure, 1958 to Present at Sheldon Museum of Art, draws its title from a 1958 jazz recording by Andrew Hill that both exemplifies and defies its time. The exhibition surveys the evolution of abstraction from the late 1950s, after the first wave of artists associated with abstract expressionism, to the present. The artists featured in Point of Departure embrace the primacy of their materials, using visual language rooted in observation. Works by Tony Bashara, Ross Blechner, Lisa Corinne Davis, Ron Gorchov, Carmen Herrera, Norman Lewis, Jill Nathanson, Odili Donald Odita, Larry Poons, Mavis Pusey, Stanley Whitney, Sue Williams, William T. Williams, Terry Winters, and others show fluid interplay between abstraction and depictive references. Point of Departure is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from August 13th through December 31st, 2021. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Since 1981, Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska has provided artists from around the world with dedicated time, space, and resources to conduct research and to create new work across conceptual, material, performative, and social practices. To date, more than 1,000 artists have participated in its international residency program. Now in its 40th year, Bemis is accepting applications for its fall 2022 artist-in-residence program. Bemis offers residents unmatched technical guidance, access to interns, and an established network of resources. Participants have the opportunity to create networks, collaborate, and share their work with fellow residents, organizational partners, and the public. The open call closes August 16, 2021 at 11.59 p.m. Central Time. To learn more about studios and facilities, resources, and financial support, visit bemiscenter.org slash apply. And we're back. Mark Stevens and Annalyn Swan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Good to be here. Good to be here. Right at the outset of the book, you set the stage for your magnificent biography of Francis Bacon thus, quote, every morning before he went out, Bacon flayed the figure. It's a great sentence, both in terms of Bacon's work, in terms of mental pictures, in terms of his life away from the easel. Why was that such a key place to start both for Bacon and for you? Well, Bacon himself always said that he was determinedly a a figurative painter. He did not want to be an abstract artist. He didn't like abstract art. He wanted to save the figure for 20th century painting, but he had to do it in his way. And one of the ways that we tried to convey how he did that was through this idea of flaying. It's a very physical idea. It's a way to suggest the, the kind of nervous intensity and the desire to get to the nub of feeling 
that Bacon was about, but really it's about the figure as being the most important subject for Bacon. There was also an echo in his private life because obviously Bacon was a homosexual. There was an S&M component to his life. So flaying, it works for him naturally, both in terms of the canvas and in terms to a certain extent of his private life that signaled all can be signaled all in one sentence. Raise something I was going to bring up later on, but but now's as good a time as any. You know, one of the challenges in writing a biography of a recently late figure is knowing how much, or at least of an artist, is knowing how much of his life life to focus on, how much of his artist and art to focus on, and then whether one argues that there's impact and mediation between the two. And then, of course, how to do that without becoming kind of page 60, the way many of us found John Richardson's last volume of Picasso to be. Did you two talk about that and figure out you know, what, what that balance was? I don't think we were abstract in that way. I think we revised and we revised a great deal until it felt right. I think that's really the gist of it. But in terms of what you were saying earlier, it is a, a very significant question how to write about an imaginative figure like an artist, because you don't want to reduce the life to the art or the art to the life. You want them to live together comfortably and naturally as much as possible. And we did, we have done a lot of work in trying to make that, that happen. Because in many books, as you know, about imaginative people, when you get to the most important part, say the dance or the or the or the novel or the painting, it uh, becomes this indigestible pudding in the middle of the text, and it doesn't move. It doesn't have life, and so we worked in many different ways about trying to solve that particular problem. So one of our people that we returned to again and again as a fellow biographer and as an inspiration was Richard Elman, the biographer of James Joyce and of Oscar Wilde. And he established in his writing both a kind of narrative arc, which is just sort of works beautifully over the span of a very large book, but he also tended to separate the work out in shorter sections so that you would have a, a bit of a back and forth and relationship between the life and the art. It wasn't ping pong, but there were moments like little jewels where he would be discussing the various Oscar Wilde works. And we thought, you know, gee, that, that's a really interesting way of approaching that combination that you find in any biography of the life and the art. And one of the ways you kind of did that was by ending many chapters with individual artworks. That's right. And that's actually the main way we addressed it. We would talk about certain artworks briefly in the text, but never too long so that you wouldn't disrupt the narrative flow. But then we would go break out longer bits uh, at the end of the chapter. And what that does is it puts a little space, sort of like in a, in a bacon triptych, the space between two panels. It puts a little space between the life and the art. And it's a way of being modest in a way, of exhibiting a little bit of humility about the way works of art work and the way works of art work in relation to the life. It also allowed us to become a little more lyrical and personal about the works of art, which is also the right thing to do, because that is how we all experience works of art anyway, isn't it, in our own personal ways. But if you did that in the text, you would be pointing too much, perhaps, at the writers and not at the subject. So it's a subtle way of being somewhat modest about the relationship of the art and the life. Yeah, that's really that's really neat. I found myself as I read the book looking forward to those. Pa I mean, I, you know, I, I came to realize those passages were coming, and I found myself really looking forward to them at the end of each each chapter. They were kind of a 
they were kind of dessert before the next day or before the next meal. Let's talk about Bacon, Bacon himself, and not just how the book got put together. And let's start after World War I with Bacon in his late teenage years. He, he, he lived in Berlin and then in Paris. What did he see in Berlin, both in museums such as the Pergamon and not in museums, that you think he took note of? Well, he spoke in later life about, not too much about those early years, but he did describe in Berlin the shock of the culture there, meaning the basically the underworld culture, the homosexual culture. He and his cousin, uh, Cecil Harcourt Smith, did go to the Pergamon and did see contemporary art shows while they were there. But inevitably, what Bacon wanted to focus on was the revelation to him of leaving Ireland, where there was the violence of the IRA, you know, the Irish Republican Army and the uprising to go to Berlin and a violence of a totally different sort, the sort of sexual violence, you know, the sort of kinetic energy, the churning underworld of Berlin. And he described how men would stand outside establishments and mime the kind of sexual acts that would be taking place inside. Don Russell, that a Berlin that was lying down on its back and just waiting to be pleasured. Yeah, I mean, you have to remember that he was a provincial boy. I mean, he was he was a teenager, a provincial teenager. If he'd had sex of any kind, it was probably boyish, prankish, even somewhat cruel, but still, you know, in, in around the farm. And then suddenly he goes to perhaps the most uh, sexually advanced and, and tough-minded city in the world at the time, Berlin. And the impact of that, the violence of that impact must have been very great. But as Anlin said, he was always reluctant to to describe too much about what went on in his early life. We also don't, don't want to just say that that Bacon was going to Berlin. You know, at the time in the 30s, all the literary crowd in England was also going there. And Stephen Spender said it very well of the Americans who were going to Paris. You know, he said, for the Americans drink, for us sex. <laughs> that was the distinction he made between Berlin in the 20s and 30s and in Paris. So Bacon, this this person he was traveling with is probably the one who got him to Berlin. It probably wasn't because Bacon was a, a beginning artist and wanted to go to Berlin. He had this cousin, this older man who was a kind of monster, a sexual monster who caused all kinds of mayhem in his life. And he took Bacon to Berlin. He was a, allegedly a family, a nice family fellow, but he wasn't. And so Bacon was was really initiated into tough, mean, rough sex in Berlin. One of the things the early chapters of the book established that become important to Bacon really throughout his career is his anti-Englishness or his anti-island provincialism and how important Europe was to him throughout, really. After he's in, he's in Berlin, he's in Paris for a time, and art history capital A art, capital H history, has fallen in love with the story of Bacon's having seen Poussin's 1629 massacre of the innocents in Paris. And it seemed to me that y'all made it a lot less foundational than a lot of art historians have in Bacon's life. And instead you place him in a contemporary Paris, a place interested in de Chirico and Dada and so on. He's in Paris after he's in Berlin. Does art begin to become more important to him in Paris, do you think? 
Definitely more important, but one reason why the Poussin went towards the the background a little bit in our book is because Bacon just you know underscored that again and again. He underscored that. He underscored seeing his first Picassos at the Gallery Paul Rosenberg, and so you had as biographers we had to step back behind that official Bacon story and, and focus on everything that he left out uh, for that year and a half. Well, and he was also, I mean, that scream comes from many places, of course. It can also come from Eisenstein and even Munch, who we would never admit to liking. But you also have to remember how young Bacon was when he was in Paris for a year and a half. He'd had no formal schooling, either in art or really in in regular school, just a year and a half. He was very young, very naive, very uneducated. The idea that he would be able to somehow imagine himself as a painter was only was very, very far-fetched. When Picasso was sitting down the, you know, a few tables down in Montparnasse, how could how could a guy like Bacon possibly imagine being an artist like Picasso? So what he did is he became involved in the very large and flourishing design and decorating field. And he gravitated towards the most radical elements of that. So he tried to, he was trying, even as a very young teenage young man and and late adolescent, he was trying to reinvent the Western room through modernist devices initially. This was one of the most interesting and entertaining parts of the book for me. Bacon as designer and businessman making rugs and chairs and launching, I I think, what you could only call a design career. Obviously, that's important in helping him make a living in those, those years. Do we see his interest in rooms and interiors and in chairs continuing in his work decades hence? Absolutely. I mean, what, one of the defining features of Bacon's paintings throughout his career, as I'm sure you know, are the decorative elements that he just kind of brought in lock, stock and barrel into even something as gruesome as the three studies figures, you know, his, his breakout painting of 1944, where one of the three grotesque monsters that appear in the painting it is placed against a kind of round table that would be with brass railings that could be in any drawing room. So that was a holdover from his early design career. And you saw that again and again in the paintings of later decades where Peter Lacey might be painted on a chaise longue and the sense of that piece of furniture or Henrietta Moraes, also on a divan, sort of striped. You look at it, and there's such a contrast between the figure, which is, of course, contorted and looks in agony, and then this tasteful, decorative objet that that she's lying on. Also, Bacon was, throughout his life, largely a painter of rooms. He began as a maker of rooms. He tried to design a full room, but later on in his paintings, it's largely rooms, often with a a piece of furniture or a window treatment in the room. And there's a kind of sacrificial element to the way he presents the room in his later work. But yes, he's not a man of the outdoors. He's not, he's not a person who is wandering around uh, sniffing the air. He's looking at the intensity of the interior room and by extension, the interior human being. I couldn't help but laughing at how Y'all have written another biography of an artist who puts people in yellow chairs. De Kooning does it a ton, of course. Bacon Bacon does it, especially the popes. And, and really, I guess you could say that both Bacon and de Kooning spent years arguing or claiming that Matisse wasn't important to him or them, even though um, 
that's something they all very much took for Matisse. So in the, the, the 1930s is the decade of Bacon's 20s. Nothing he made early in the decade really has, has survived. We've talked a little bit about his kind of formative travels and places he lived early on. Was there a single individual who was kind of important to, to heading him on his way in the 1930s? Well, the Pater Roy de Mestre was very, very important to Bacon in that period of time. Picasso for the ideas and, mm. and Roy de Mestre for just showing him how to put mixed pigments on a fundamental level, not the vision, but on how to do the, the actual painting. But there is one little digression here. Before Bacon became an abject failure in the 30s, he was actually a, an early success. He does have a wonderful early crucifixion painting of 1933 that is very, very spectral. It's a obviously owes a huge debt to Picasso, but it's it's a beautiful painting. You know, very very evanescent, very very ghostly. Uh, this lovely small uh, crucifixion, which appeared in a very important book of the time by Herbert Reed, across from a Picasso crucifixion. So you know that's that's pretty heady stuff, right? And he was also a showing at the Freddie Mayer, a brand new fashionable gallery in Mayfair. But then when he went off on his own, disaster ensued. Well, the, the 30s is actually uh, very, very new in, in our book because there's been a diary that was recently uh, published from his cousin uh, or a version of her diary that is really revelatory because what it shows is that Bacon him, himself was almost a classic young, desperate artist in a garret all by himself. In the early part of the 30s, as Anlin said, he had some success, but then he had significant failures and he was then really alone, seriously alone with his art. And he's a largely a self-taught figure, but he was working very, very hard at teaching himself during these years. Almost nothing survives. The only, the only pictures that survive from the 30s are his more tasteful exercises in French modernism, really, that people liked, you know, because they, they reminded them of other things. So those survive, but a few of those survive. But he was also making much darker and probably more interesting work that did not survive. And Bacon himself would always say that he didn't do any much work at all in the 30s. He was just gambling and drinking and carrying on. In fact, what we now know from different sources, so it's really the case, is that he was working as hard then as he worked later. He spent uh, really a decade teaching himself to paint. If you look at the progression of his, his career, so he had that early success with the uh, crucifixion and Michael Sadler, one of the great uh, collectors of the time, bought it. But the next year, he created his own gallery called the Transition Gallery. And it showed, as Mark was saying, the other side of Bacon, the sort of horrific, bloody side, the fascination with cruelty. The paintings had names like Wound for a Crucifixion and things like that. What his then the man in his life, early supporter, Eric Alden, Eric Alden kept a diary of the time from that 1934 show. And he wrote in his diary, this period in Francis's painting life is just, it's so unfortunate. If only he just moves on quickly. But of course, he didn't move on quickly. That's the direction he kept going on right through the war and up to the time of the 1945 show that he said was his breakthrough with three studies. Crucifixions remain important for Bacon for decades after this 1933 painting y'all mentioned. 
and they pop up often at really important moments, such as in 1962, just before his Tate survey. I hope I'm getting the year right. Why were crucifixions so important to Bacon and what made crucifixions so important to Bacon? I think the, the simple answer is human sacrifice or sacrifice in general. I think Bacon regarded what had happened to humanity in the 20th century as a kind of sacrifice. He wouldn't have put it in that sentimental way. It sounds a little corny to say that. But really what had happened was a kind of uh, just blood-drenched sacrifice. And how do you present that? Well, the classic way in Western culture is to present it through the crucifixion. So Bacon was always flirting with the idea of the crucifixion, which is the sacrifice of humanity on the cross. But as you know, he wasn't he wasn't himself a Christian, and he had he disliked Christianity a great deal for a number of reasons. He was more drawn to ancient sacrifice. His work is a kind of combination, often especially the the more difficult works of of ancient and modern sacrifice conjoined. The sixty two crucifixion you're talking about is probably is definitely his most difficult work, and it shows a on the right panel there's a crucifixion echo of a crucifixion from Trimabui, and in the center there's a really, really disturbing, bloody sacrifice where there's a kind of violent joy in the painting almost that is like bloodlust. So it's a very, very powerful panel. And then in the left uh, panel, there's a people looking on like critics observing, but there's uh, beef bones jutting out of one of those two critics. It's probably worth my noting that the Bacon is certainly not the only artist turning to crucifixions after World War II. David Driscoll paints a, a, a great one in the wake of, of Emmett Till's murder, for example. That, do, that does bring up World War II and the 1940s. You all write that, quote, Bacon will not become himself until the 1940s. And while Bacon does not fight in the war, you all tell a great story of how he <laughs> spent a night sleeping with a dog so that his asthma would flare up so that he wouldn't be accepted into, <laughs> into the military. But the war has a a huge impact on him, and you all spend a lot of space on it, understandably. I guess before we get to, say, Graham Sutherland and and Henry Moore, quite simply, how did the war impact Bacon? It was formative in our our view, and one of the reasons why we know it's formative is that Bacon never talked about it. Shaggy Alsatian dog story, for example, that's probably apocryphal because within Four to five days of Britain declaring, you know, entering World War II, Bacon had signed up to be a Red Cross driver. So that's hardly an example of him, you know, trotting off gladly from the, you know, from the conflict. And then he later served in the air raid precautions. But the truth of the matter is that that Bacon began serving. He came from a, a family, after all, of military people. His aldermen, the men in his life at the time, Eric Hall, had fought in World War One. I. I mean, he wasn't just going to walk away. But what did him in, as it were, in any way in the, the war is once the blitz began, his lungs as an asthmatic were pulverized. And so for two years, he retreated out to... Petersfield Steep, this uh, school called Bedales, which is about 60 miles from London. And it was there in, in the silence and solitude that Bacon actually had the time to, you know, read Aeschylus, to, you know, read all, all of the Greek tragedies and to look at the picture post magazines that came every week with their, you know, the snarling mouths of the Nazi leaders on the on the covers. And slowly but surely, his vision 
you know, which actually he'd had this kind of vision of violence and blood in the 30s. But uh, under the press of war, it began to coalesce into what we now think of as the Bacon vision of the 40s and 50s, that sort of terrifying commentary upon humanity. Before we get to a couple of those paintings, it's in these years, in the early to mid-40s, that Bacon meets Graham Sutherland. At the time, Sutherland was one of the two artists atop the British art pyramid, if you will. You know, we've, we've mentioned a couple other less well-known in America anyway, artists that Bacon learned from. How did he meet Sutherland and what did he take or learn from him? He knew Sutherland in passing before they actually became great friends in the, in the mid-40s. But a little context of this is that Bacon was not in the art world proper like so many artists were before the war. Lucian Freud and, you know, Graham Sutherland, they were all, you know, part and parcel of this little arts world. And Bacon really wasn't part of that. He had gone his own way. But in 1944, just as he was ending this period of solitude out there in Steep, he wrote to Sutherland. And Sutherland had, he had actually been in an earlier show with Sutherland among some of the other neo-romantic painters. Sutherland had, you know, so Sutherland knew Bacon from that experience. And he wrote and said, you know, I think it wouldn't it be marvelous if we got together? You know, I still know a few places in London where I can find, you know, good food. And so then Sutherland began visiting him at uh, his Cromwell Place uh, studio, and they became fast friends for that period of time for at least a decade and longer. And does Sutherland kind of elide Bacon's way into the British art world? Yes. Sutherland was a a very generous man, and he admired uh, Bacon's talent enormously. Early on there, he, he introduced Bacon to Kenneth Clark. He spoke about Bacon to Sir John Rathenstein at the Tate. Sutherland was a, a very smooth man. He worked very, very well with the gears of English culture. He knew how to pull them, press them, and how to get ahead. And so did his wife. Bacon was always quite indifferent to that kind of thing, but he was not against or averse having someone else help him. So I think that's the way it worked. Also, at that time, Bacon took some probably some visual ideas from Sutherland. There was a certain spiky quality to his Sutherland's landscapes and the orange, that kind of difficult orange uh, was something that Sutherland was also working with. Also Sutherland, you know, was a direct conduit in for Bacon for the famous 1945 show at the Lefebvre Gallery. Duncan McDonald, the curator there, asked Sutherland who he'd like to be shown with, because of course he was the star, as you said. And uh, Sutherland wrote back and said, the, the person I would really prefer to show with is Francis Bacon. You haven't heard of him, but he's a marvelous painter. The war ends and Bacon meets its end with a canvas we know as painting 1946. Was it a mindfully self-conscious end of the war picture? And what role did Bacon's painting painting play in launching post-war art and not only in England? Well, that's a complicated question. I mean, what he what he does after the war or during the war and right after the war is he takes a new look at the figure. And actually his famous triptych, Three Studies, the figures at the base of the crucifixion, is not the direction he was going in. Uh, it's his most famous work, but he, as you say, he's going much more in the direction of painting 46 and subsequent figure paintings. And what they do is they create a, a new feeling, I think, of human flesh after the war. They create a new feeling for the figure after the war. 
And there's something at the time people complained that Bacon, and they still complain about him, many people do, that there's a grand guignol quality, a kind of overly melodramatic quality to Bacon. And in fact, there is. He intends that just as the Greek tragedians intended. I mean, there's nothing more grand guignol-like than portions of Aeschylus or Sophocles. Bacon wanted to press the button, that kind of button. He wanted to get past good taste above all. He wanted to get away from the English drawing room. He needed to break out of that. And that included a lot of different elements, one of which was this grand guignol quality, and the other was to take apart the figure in a, in a new, a new post-war way. Painting is a fascinating picture for lots of reasons, including the remnants, if you will, of what appears to be a figure that we can't see in the picture as having been crucified, but the suggestion is, is certainly there. At, at, at the risk of um, another de Kooning callback, is there a Soutine reference in what's going on behind the figure in Bacon's painting? Bacon didn't like Soutine, he said, uh, which doesn't mean that he wasn't influenced by him. I think he would have probably referred to the Rembrandt of the slaughtered ox, I think it is. He would prefer to be connected to that, and he did love that painting. But yes, I think there's probably some Soutine there. Uh, he, what he was doing was he was making, as, as Rembrandt did, and as Soutine did, he was making that gutted animal into the shape of a cross and a Christ figure on the cross, an allusion to it. And then underneath it, he put this very disturbing figure with no eyes, but a gentleman with a boutonniere and, and a little bit of Baconish furniture down below. It, it was a classic kind of post-war painting, as you say. He's resetting the table for the post-war period in a way. The, the other remarkable thing about painting 1946 is that it was bought very early by the Museum of Modern Art in 1948. Alfred Barr was one of, of Bacon's very early fans. And everybody in later decades came to believe that, oh, you know, Francis Bacon didn't really have much of an impact on the states. And certainly the great critics, the ab abstract expressionist critics, Clement Greenberg and Harold Rosenberg, they didn't give him the time of day, neither did Tom Hess. But in point of fact, the, the MoMA got there really early and they were very dismayed when the Guggenheim captured Bacon's first retrospective in the States. But people forget that now. MoMA was an early champion. They bought another dog painting in 1952. And then comes the 63 Guggenheim show. So one could argue that there's more of Bacon in America than people remember. Well, MoMA wasn't exactly enthusiastic about Bacon, I don't really think. I think they thought, well, that's still English literary painting, you know. It's still, they're still over there in, in, in backward Europe, they're still, doing, they're still doing the figure, whereas we're doing the important things with abstraction. So I think there was a kind of, uh, you know, some condescension in their enthusiasm for Bacon, even then. Well, to, to, that, to that point, Alfred Barr in 1957 called Bacon England's most interesting painter. But isn't that interesting, the word yeah. England is used? <laughs> it reminds me how 19th century American artists were not received well in England, in, in 19th century England. And so in the 20th century, Americans paid the Brits back, right? Right. Spades. <laughs> It's also interesting to hear you point out that Bacon was probably looking at Rembrandt's Slaughtered Ox, which I think at the time was was in the Louvre. And there are v versions possibly by Rembrandt, possibly not elsewhere in the world, including, I think, in Philadelphia. You know, that, that, that that's a painting that was almost certainly 
really important to Clifford still, too. And you can't hardly think of two painters who were more pictorially different than Bacon and Still. It just kind of speaks to how in that moment, at the uh, mid to late 1940s, that painters were groping around looking for mooring, classic painting mooring in the midst of a, a shattered world. Kind of the next really great Bacon I wanted to bring up was Head One from 1948. Two things. First, what's its relationship to the 1946 picture we've been talking about? And then secondly, Head One is one of the fullest, earliest Bacon screams, Bacon anguished facial contortions screams. How did he, how did he come to that form, if you will? Well, he was probably thinking about doing a crucifixion with figures around the crucifixion, the crowd or the mob around the crucifixion. And this is probably came out of his desire to paint some of those figures. But it turned into a remarkable work all its own. I think the way we describe it in the book, it's as, it's as if the face has slid off English portraiture. You, you see the head very clearly, but the face is kind of falling off and the face is revealed to be kind of a monkey face with, with some teeth and a kind of scream. Bacon's scream is not is not necessarily one of it's full of pathos, you know. It's a there's a sort of sad animal quality to that face. Then the other element of that painting that's so remarkable is is that line, which I think we refer to as the most abstract line in English art, which is attached to the ear of the head. And it runs up we know not where. Let me point out really quickly, it's right in the middle of the painting. Yeah. And it's very thin, it glistens with light, and it goes up to the top. And is attached to what? Well, it's attached to that nothingness that we can never reach, that we don't know, to the fates, to the powers that be that we don't understand. Anyway, that line is pulling on the ear and it's in a way releasing the face. And so you have this great tradition of English portraiture, you know, all those things in the great houses where they're, they're all standing there very, you know, very august and important and grand. And then you have this, this, this like, a, like a school teacher pulling on an ear, right? Or a, somebody attached. And there's a, or a jerk of a curtain, and suddenly the face falls off the portrait. In the late 1940s, Bacon first meets Lucian Freud, with whom he'd be close friend for many decades. What do they do and provide for each other, both personally and artistically? Well, one thing people tend to forget is how much younger Freud was than Bacon. He, he was preternaturally sophisticated. During the war, Freud was networking out there like crazy, knew everybody in, in the English art world. Nonetheless, you know, Bacon was that much older and that much more accomplished. So initially, at least, the, the relationship was Freud acknowledging that Bacon really extended his horizons, took his art in a new direction. We had a very interesting conversation with Anne Dunn, who was a great friend, the painter Anne Dunn, who was a great friend of both of them. And she said that she could see a moment, specifically in the early 50s, when Freud's painting began to change under the influence of Francis Bacon coming into his life. You know, Freud began to change from that very northern, beautiful moon uh, fingernails, you, you know, th that sort of absolutely exquisite style, the early Freud style. And she saw it beginning to change as early as the early 50s. Well, you know, also one thing that I should mention, because we haven't, we've been talking about all this 
uh, seemingly difficult art. But Bacon had a really good time in his life often. He was really a fun person, a joyful person, who really enjoyed going out after he spent his morning working. And one of the people he loved going out with, although they would sometimes have breakfast very early too, was was Freud. They They were able to talk together in the way that perhaps only painters can talk to one another uh, with a kind of shorthand. They were sometimes described as very obnoxious together because they seemed to just not only dominate a room, but their opinions were so fierce, you know, they would, they would look at a picture and they would, uh, they would give no quarter. And for Bacon, it was very useful to have this companion. And for Freud, it was very useful to have this older figure who was pushing him out of his Freud, Freud in his early work is is very safe, you know. I mean, he's relying upon line in a way to be composed and tight and controlled. Bacon sort of roughens him up, loosens him up, uh, and makes possible, perhaps, you never really know, but helps him to change his art later in the, in the 60s and 70s. One of the things we do bring up in the book is how uh, sort of the unknown or rather glossed over figures who were important to Bacon. And one of them was Isabel Rosthorn, who was a fellow painter in the late 40s. She was really important to Bacon. She was seeing him virtually daily and keeping uh, great letter writing, which we were privy to. And, you know, so in that case, she was a figure who both helped Bacon, in a sense, you know, just do shop talk in a very unthreatening way, in a way that perhaps he couldn't with male painters. But he also went on to paint Isabel Rosthorn 15 times. And in our book, one of my favorite paintings is the portrait, 67 portrait, called Portrait of Isabel Rosthorn Standing in a Street in Soho, because there you have this commanding female presence, almost totally written out of the the, the popular imagination about Bacon, but it, it's one of his great paintings, I would say in the top 10. And there's Isabel Rosler in this very commanding figure in her black dress. And she's staring out, looks like at her admirers in Soho. And she's framed by one of those great uh, Bacon framing devices. It goes back to his early decorator days. And so you get this sense of this sort of almost majestic a woman with this, with her prow, you know, standing standing proudly in the streets of Soho. Marvelous painting. The picture is now at the National Gallery in Berlin. Ross Thorne, of course, was also a model for Giacometti. And while I'm probably going to slide right over it, Giacometti and I guess his first or second big retrospective exhibition is, is prominent within your book. I'm glad Mark mentioned that Bacon liked to go out and have a good time, clothed or not, because there's there's lots of that in the book, and it helps us understand who Bacon was and gives us a lot of insight into the pictures. But I was also struck by a, a paradox in the book, and one, you know, I, I think fairly early, maybe in the early middle of the book, you all point out that Bacon was always free for dinner. <laughs> Friends would, would, would call him and, and he, would, he would generally be able to go have dinner that night, even as he has this very, very active social life. How do those two things coexist? Did it strike you that there was, I don't know, a place and a time for Bacon's wild side to come out and a place and time for him just to be available for dinner on a Wednesday night? Well, Tyler, we were talking earlier about how one tries to bring as many ideas to bear to a question or a painting or a person as you can at once, because many things are true at once. And Bacon was both the most sociable of people, but also one of the most lonely of people. 
He was very interested in power, but he was equally interested in powerlessness. And so there are these paradoxes that run through his life. And that quote about the about he was always free for dinner, I think that was probably referring more to his later years when it's not uncommon for very celebrated, more elderly figures to be quite alone if they're not married or don't have a companion because people are afraid to contact them. People are afraid to call them. And for Bacon especially, I don't think he was very good at being alone at night. He needed to get out. He needed to have human contact. Also, there was a, a kind of informal aspect of this, you know, in earlier life. They all went to the colony, and then from the colony, they kind of rolled to dinner with whatever group they were with. It was it was more informal. It you was know? a kind of pack, you know, yeah. a London pack, and they would there were people would peel off or come together, peel off. But there was a that you would go to the to the colony, and then and then you would meet friends, and then you would go to dinner, or and then you'd go to the gargoyle, or, you know, whatever. But when Bacon also, you know, in this paradox and contradictions, he was also part of this London literary world, and in that world, yes, indeed, he would have, you know, established, you know, dinners, and he, you know, that was Janetta Parliday, that was Stephen Spender, that world. So he had a foot in many different worlds. A moment ago, Mark mentioned Bacon's relationship to power. You know, in these post-war decades, Bacon begins to paint men in suits. Are those pictures about power? And how was Bacon kind of joining time and place to a cultural of the moment or culture of the moment touchstone in those paintings? Absolutely, they're about power. They're, I mean, he dealt with the power of the Pope before he did the businessmen. You could think that Painting 1946 was also a kind of businessman. The reason he's such an emblematic painter, I think, for the 20th century is that he combines this paradoxical quality of power and powerlessness at the same time. And what he's doing in those businessman paintings, he's definitely doing a gray flannel suit, David Reisman kind of thing. He's showing that the businessmen who allegedly rule the world have a private quality that is not on view. And that in that room of the self, they are as subject to disruption as that head is attached to the, to the wire on the ear. He's always playing with power and powerlessness. And what, what I love about that dynamic in Bacon is that he's equally interested in each, you know. He's equally interested in these abstract powers that rain down trouble upon us. But he's very tender and empathetic, really, about the powerless figure. And I, I think that's characteristic of the of the 20th century. That that's a a way that he gets into the soul of his time. He was also felt powerless himself yeah. often because he was unbelievably shy. You know, that's another thing that we bring out in the book. I mean, he was so paralyzingly shy in his early years that he could barely function. And that continued all the way through his life. There's a very poignant memory of his last lover, Jose Capello. And before Jose Capello and Bacon would go out to, say, the formal dinner parties we were just talking about, Bacon would become increasingly agitated. And he would have to write down a question or two so that he would have something to say at the beginning of the dinner parties. Otherwise, he was, you know, he was a little frozen around all of these these people who had such a better education than than he had. You know, that's, that's one thing we forget. He was self-made both as a 
as a painter as, and an intellectual. He was wonderfully well-read, but he would be socializing with the old Eaton crowd or over in Paris with the Mandarins. And so that, that made him extremely anxious. You know, that reminds me of how kind of nomadic Bacon was. You all point out that in, in these years, as we move through the 60s and 70s, that Bacon didn't really have a fixed address. You know, he wasn't, he was kind of pointedly not landed British gentry, right? He, he communicated with people primarily through telegram, like you're free for dinner tonight type telegrams, which seems, I don't know, kind of points to some of the things Mark was, was talking about earlier about Bacon's loneliness. I want to talk a little bit about the two big retrospectives, London and Paris, and their connection you know, how, how at these great moments of triumph, Bacon experienced great tragedy around both of them. What were those tragedies and what impact did the confluence of triumph and tragedy have on him in those, those two instances? Well, the first one you're referring to occurred in 1962 when Peter Lacey, who was the love of Bacon's life, and, and by the way, one of the things we do in the book is that we try to bring to life these secondary figures like Peter Lacey and give them their own humanity. This was a very, very important relationship to both men. And Bacon was devastated and Lacey died. Lacey died right at the moment of his great triumph at the Tate in 1962. Then, not more than 10 years later, something similar happens. Actually, even worse, because what happened was right on the ground in Paris. And it, this, this was, was November of 1971. Bacon was having a retrospective, 134 paintings at the Grand Palais, where Picasso had also had a retrospective. He was the first Englishman ever to be offered that venue. And a great moment in his career, a color guard at the entrance, hundreds of people there at the private view. Afterwards, a huge dinner at Le Tremble restaurant, glittering mirrors, you know, the whole French aspect, the, the decorative, wonderful, marvelous French formal establishment. And the night before, George Dyer, his longtime lover from 1962 to, the, to this particular event, the night before, George Dyer had had taken an overdose of alcohol and drugs, died on the loo in their shared hotel room. So the morning of the private view, they, the Bacon entourage asked the hotel manager if they would just keep the body in the room and make the announcement the following day so that it wouldn't eclipse the, this magnificent event, which they did. But of course, Francis Bacon knew as he stood up and, and took the accolades from his hundreds of admirers, he knew that waiting back in the hotel room was his dead lover. At the, at the two moments of his greatest multinational career recognizing trans-channel triumphs, at the risk of asking a completely sentimental and hokey question, how did he get over or through each? By painting. Well, he didn't, but he didn't just put it in the work. That's, I mean, he, what, one of the things that Bacon was, was really wonderfully unsentimental about certain things. And what he said about, about friends dying, he says, you don't get over it. You know, it continues. They continue to be part of your life, and it, it's not good. But uh, he also did paint. Uh, there, but, there, yeah, there. but he, he yes, of course, he, he, he painted a, a, a in 71, he painted a, a series of massive, beautiful triptychs about death. And earlier when Peter Lacey, who really was the love of his life, George Dyer was a charming cockney. But, you know, Peter Lacey was his same class, background, everything. And when Peter Lacey died, 
1962. After that, uh, Bacon was shattered. He went off and painted a wonderful painting called Landscape at Malabada. The hidden code, the sentimental code to that painting was that that's a, a, a place that was of special fondness for both him and Peter Lacey for whatever private reasons. And he produced this kind of spiraling enigmatic figure, one of his most mysterious paintings out of from the death of Peter Lacey. As we move through the 70s, it seems to me that the interior spaces of Bacon's pictures become more defined, more blocked off. You mentioned Bacon in color. Often he uses big blocks of color to kind of define what the viewer reads, as arch- at least I read, as architectural space. Why do you think the interior spaces of his paintings become more important as, as he kind of nears his last decade or two? Well, maybe Mark has a different opinion about this, but I see that as as part and parcel of Bacon becoming more accomplished. You know, in the in the last two decades, he began uh, spraying uh, aerosol paint on, on the canvases and then just focusing on the images, you know, more and more. There'd always been a kind of disconnect between figure and background in Bacon's paintings. But in those later years, the grand Bacon phenomenon began, as it were, and other artists sort of noted it and said, oh, well, those are are the Bacon blue chip paintings. But it was a point when he became increasingly self-assured and increasingly turning out this particular, these new grand Bacon images. Some of them, of course, the great triptychs, but just in general, there was a, a more tasty quality, too, to the backgrounds. You're absolutely right. More interior design elements began to enter in again. These are the Bacons that people tend to like least, by the way. There's a strong point of view held by many people that sort of in the 70s and 80s, his art declines significantly, and he becomes a brand, and he begins to churn them out. And to a degree, that's true, at least at points. His gallery was very keen on getting his pictures out of the studio and out and onto the market. He needed money often. So perhaps he did churn them out occasionally. But the thing you have to do with artists always, I think, is judge them on their best work. And there are marvelous late Bacons too. And they become a different kind of Bacon. That smoothness that people object to is a kind of theatrical postmodern smoothness, I think. Whereas in his earlier work in the 50s and 40s and 50s, he always seemed to be trying to get to the bottom of something, to hit hit the center, to really get to the nerve. Later on, he still shows images that, that seem to suggest that, but there's a gauzy quality and the glazing and the frames and the, and the aerosol paint fields. You begin to think, well, is this just a picture of that? And that's a very postmodern sort of feeling, isn't it? That you can't get to the bottom, finally, of who the person is. That everything is just a performance in the end. That authenticity is just one role of many. I'd like to close with what you all describe as the best American Bacon survey. The 1989 survey organized by Jim Demetrian for the Hirshhorn. Jim, of course, was widely admired in the American museum and curatorial fields for having a great painting eye. And back then, the Hirshhorn was capable of being a major venue that did major paintings shows. What made that exhibition so good? And did Bacon's more or less absence from it have something to do with that? (laughs) 
The absence was profoundly important, <laughs> Tyler. The reason is Bacon, as we show in the book, was exceedingly interested in his own shows, how his reputation would be established you know, for posterity. So he would get right in there and, and interfere with you know, any curator he could. He would rehang the shows. It was just incredible what he did. And in this particular instance, James Demetrian took the earlier 85 Tate retrospective, which because Bacon always did this, was a little bloated, too many of a good thing. And he cut it down to 54 paintings, I believe it was. And in the in doing so, he more than halved the number of paintings. And so suddenly everybody saw, my goodness, look at all these uh, dimensions of Bacon. They had never actually had the ability to see all of those paintings because of, of the great mass of them. So that was the single biggest difference in that show and the others. And Bacon was too sick, too preoccupied to actually get in there and bother Demetrian. Yes, a frequent criticism of that show was that it was too beautiful, too well, too well painted, which was a, certainly a paradox and an irony, given the <laughs> earlier criticism that was usually directed at Bacon for being uh, not a trained artist. But that was a that was a testament, really, to the curator's marvelous selection and the sense of of how much a viewer can take uh, over time. It's you know a, a show of a, of a hundred and fifty Bacon's is just too much for anybody to really absorb. And I guess I would be remiss if I didn't close by asking what 12 to 15 year biography project you all are working on next. <laughs> in, in fairness to us, we need a slight breather. <laughs> well, the, the, you know, a, a bit like Bacon, it all gets done at the end, doesn't it? Really? You, <laughs> say, you, you say 10 years, but you spend the first five years sort of fussing and thinking and messing around. I think we got spoiled, though, in, in both of our books, but particularly Bacon, because Bacon's life in, in Ireland, his, the formative years were so important. So, of course, we had to spend time in Ireland. And then, he, you know, his, his, the French Riviera, he lived there more or less for four years after the war. So we had to go there, you know, and then he had a studio in 1975 he bought in Paris. So, of course, we had to spend time in Paris. And then, of course, Tangier. That was very painful. And then <laughs> finally, Spain in the last years of his life. That's not what we call a, a, a hardship to do Francis Bacon research. Authors write books to write off trips to good places. Well, that's true. <laughs> and it was, it was always a pleasure being with Bacon. That's the odd thing. I mean, yes, his, his art is dark. He might have set the dark edge of the century, but or establish the edge of the century, the darkest edge. But his life is uh, full of uh, vim, you know, He's to use the word in another way. He was a very gay guy. And what, one of my favorite things uh, to pick out of the reviews of the book is when people said, we, you authors focused us on parts of Bacon we never knew existed. His gregariousness, his generosity, you know, his electrifying high spirits, often P.S. based upon booze and drugs, but there it was. The sacred monster a stereotype of Bacon was so inset into people's minds that to take that, that scrim away was refreshing for many people. Intensity is fun to write about and a heck of a lot more fun to write about than, than its opposite, right? <laughs> Mark Stevens and Annalyn Swan. Thanks very much. Thank you, Thank Tyler. You, Tyler. The Getty Center is having something of a photography moment this summer. Four exhibitions are now open and run through October 10th. 
Mario Giacomelli, Figure Ground, which features the humanistic work of one of the foremost Italian photographers of the 20th century, The Expanded Landscape, a selection of large-scale, graphically abstract contemporary works, Photo Flux, Unshuttering L.A., which brings together inspiring photographs by L.A.-based artists of color, and In Focus Protest, an exhibition of images made during periods of social struggle in the U.S. Learn more and make free advance reservations at getty.edu. At long last, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. Open April 17th through August 1st, 2021. The fifth edition of the Hammer's Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view April 17th through August 1st, 2021, at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and make reservations at hammer.ucla.edu and huntington.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is Catherine Brown, the author of Henri Matisse, a critical biography just released as part of Reaction Books' Critical Lives series. Brown's book offers new ideas about important paintings and presents the ways in which contemporary critics engaged with and presented Matisse's work. Amazon offers it for $10 to $19. What a steal. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Brown teaches at Loughborough University in the UK among her previous works is Matisse's Poets, Critical Performance in the Artist's Book. Catherine Brown, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. It's great to be with you. Across this new book, you foreground the contemporary response to Matisse's work by critics and other hangers-on, often in his orbit or, you know, a degree removed from it. It's great fun for lots of reasons. One of them is that the presentation is rarely too flattering to the dignity of those bellying up to the Matisse bar. Those trying to associate themselves with him, I think readers will immediately recognize many of the same sorts who flit between New York dealerships and alleged criticism today. But your takes are, and, and, and your presentations are always informative about how Matisse was considered in his present, and especially within the context of France's 20th century history, and I, I enjoyed that a lot. Why did you take that tack to the project? Well, I think one of the things I wanted to do was really to think about how Matisse was 
focused very much on his own career, thinking about how he could manipulate critical environments, how he could develop partnerships with dealers, with critics, with poets. That was a very important part of his strategy. And how he met critics on their own terms. So he wasn't prepared to simply sit back and let people write about him. He actually wanted to get out there and shape the critical environment in which he was operating. So I was very interested in that, interested in how he used language, how he used his art in ways that would engage people, be provocative, attract attention. So he was always thinking very strategically as well as being simply creative. And, and, and I found that a very interesting part of, of what made him a very modern artist. To kind of bring that idea forward for listeners, do you have a favorite example of, of how Matisse did that, maybe with one particular critic or one particular poet? Well, I guess early on, I mean, one of the first people to, to write about him really seriously was the poet Guillaume Apollinaire. And Apollinaire is really very well known for his close relationship with Picasso. But early on, Apollinaire did an interview with, with Matisse. So we're talking about sort of 1907, did an interview with Matisse and then published the essay, the, the, the interview, really under his own name, sort of didn't really credit Matisse very much. But Matisse was in the background, sort of working with Apollinaire, shaping Apollinaire's ideas about what he was doing. And that, that essay became hugely influential. It put forward a view of Matisse, not just as a quintessentially French painter, but as, a, as someone who created their works almost by instinct. And that, that became a very powerful descriptor of Matisse over the course of his career. And Matisse endorsed that view. And it was really something that, that developed and gathered force over the course of the 20th century. So, you know, right from that, that first decade of the 20th century, Matisse is there looking for people who have that public mouthpiece, who, who have connections to publishing outlets, and getting his ideas, his self-image out there through poets and through critics. So, you know, a, a really very strategic attitude to career management. That Apollinaire example is, <laughs> recurs throughout the book. It's really great. So just, you know, I'm, I'm getting these numbers wrong, but let's just say for the sake of example and argument, you know, you mentioned that interview and discourse on page like 35, and it pops up again on 85, 117, and 148, as other critics foreground some of the ideas in that Apollinaire piece and update it for or thinly updated in their own work. And of course, the legacy of that interview continues forward in the way particularly American art historians have misunderstood the Matisse armchair quote, where he's, he said in a context that nobody rounds out that he wanted his art to be. Uh, I'm, in fact, you know what? I'm not even going to say it because I don't want to <laughs> continue the, 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 the misunderstanding of that, of that quote. It's, it's in Flam's Matisse on art, of course, if listeners want to go find it. The full context is in Flames Matisse on art. One of your book's most important contributions to Matisse scholarship is its foregrounding of Matisse's great 1907 Blue Nude, the most important and influential 20th century painting, but a picture that even many Matissians have, have underplayed. Today, the picture is in Baltimore, which of course hasn't helped. It's kind of an out-of-the-way geography for American art historians and, and others, of course. I mean, non-American art historians, it's even more out of the way. And of course, Baltimore as an institution isn't really interested in art history these days. You argue in the book that Matisse must have been looking at a certain 18th century picture as he began to make Blue Nude and its associated sculpture. What is the picture you think he was looking at? And 
why do you think it must have been important to Matisse? Well, the picture in question is is by Watteau, Jean-Antoine Watteau, and it's called Fête Vénitienne, Venetian Festivals, produced early in the 18th century. And if you look in the, the upper right-hand corner of that work, the work's in Edinburgh, you see a lounging female nude. It's a statue in pretty much exactly the same position. So the, the arm bent behind the head, the, the legs tipped forward. And Matisse's blue nude is really a, a mirror image of that. But it's very different in terms of the way in which the body is presented. Whereas in the Vato, you've got these rounded contours, this very sensual figure, you know, traditionally feminine in its in its look. Matisse comes along and, and uses that as a as a template, but then transforms it into something very, very different and into a figure that seems to say, well, you know, you had all your expectations about what the female nude is supposed to look like in art. You had all your expectations about beauty. And now I'm going to turn them all on their head and, and call into question what it is you think you're seeing when you see the female nude in art. So, you know, not only is it interesting in its own right, but it's interesting in a sort of longer history of both the female nude in Western art and in terms of what viewers expect and what their expectations are in terms of the, the use of beauty in art. And I think that's why people found it provocative at the time. And, and, and in some, reasons, some cases why it continues to be difficult to write about and, and to provoke. The figure you're referencing in the painting in Edinburgh is a background figure. It's in the, the upper right, the center upper right of the picture. Do you have an understanding of when and where Matisse may have seen it and why he may have been interested in that figure in the first place? That's difficult to pin down. He doesn't, he doesn't write about it explicitly. We know that he has a, a, had a great interest in, in art history. You know, he was going around the Palais des Beaux-Arts in Lille when he was, when he was young. He was a, a frequent visitor to the, to the Louvre. You know, he studied art history along with his, his own practical work. It was a, a key part of becoming an artist. He was always, he was fond of saying, you know, you have to study the masters, as he put it. So this is a kind of pictorial illusion rather than, I think, you, can, you know, something you can say Matisse was, was studying Vato or particularly focused on him. So I think it's, 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 it's interesting from the point of view of the, the kind of trope that it's interfacing with you know, a particular body position that's designed to show off the female body. I mean, that, that extended, that, that raised left arm that, that lifts the torso, that lifts the breasts. It's pose that exposes the body as well as conceals in part. So it's, it's a very interesting, you know, shape that he's experimenting with. And he's thinking about articulating the body as much as he is about, you know, that, that history of the way in which women and the female nude has been represented in art. And of course, Matisse is also interested in, in flattening pictorial space. You know, I think Picasso and, and Brock get a lot of play for that, but Matisse and his Fauve buddies are beginning to do that, you know, years, years earlier. Art historians have often pointed to the importance or presumed importance of Michelangelo's night from the sarcophagus of Giuliano di Lorenzo de' Medici's tomb in Florence to, to Blue Nude. Matisse does indeed visit Florence in 1907, but he isn't there until after he finishes and indeed exhibits Blue Nude. Surely 
the Louvre had some form of representation of night, be it a plaster cast or an engraving or, or drawings by artists and perhaps Matisse knew artists who had their own drawings of, of night. It was a pretty famous thing. How might we consider night within the context of the Watteau and Matisse's kind of thinking through an idea? I mean, you point out another very important potential source for that for that image and for that pose in particular, although the pose is closer to the Vato than it is to the Michelangelo. But the Michelangelo could certainly have been another inspiration. And I think it's important to, to think of the work as embedded in the, the kind of an image network. You know, I, I wouldn't like to think of, I wouldn't like to try to pin Matisse down or to pin one of his works down to a single source or to suggest that he's actually copying something, you know, in a particular way. You know, he was very open to all kinds of influences. Art publishing was was flourishing in Paris uh, and in France in the early 20th century. I'm sure he had access to all kinds of, of books, of, of magazines, reproductions of works. So, we can we can think of blue nude as actually kind of drawing it's a bit like a magnet it's drawing these things into it and and that adds to its you know interpretive density i think and and makes it a particularly exciting kind of artifact you know once we start to open it up and peel away all these different stories and and possible sources and and of of influence and inspiration totally and as i noted earlier i think art historians have a lot of work left to do on the painting the sculpture that helped prompt Blue Nude was, of course, 1907's Reclining Nude Aurora. Matisse, as as you note in the book, includes the sculpture in a zillion paintings, as, as he was wont to do. And of course, he also includes paintings in the background of many of his paintings. But never, so far as I can recall anyway, Blue Nude. Do you have any ideas about why he so often included the sculpture reclining nude aurora within paintings but not blue nude the painting within paintings i think he i mean you know it was a form that he returned to over and over again and i think he managed to sort of make use of it as a different kind of of signifier i mean one of the works that i find particularly interesting is a work that doesn't get spoken about very much which is the three o'clock sitting from 1924 where he actually depicts one of his own models, Henriette Daricarère, painting another model. And in the background, just, you know, sort of very casually, we see a little sculpture, almost positioned as it is in the, in the Vateau, but on the, on the left-hand side instead of the right, of that reclining nude. You'd say it was like a throwaway line if it, if it were a, a theatrical performance or something. But it's interesting to see him, as you say, using the sculpture and, and not the painting. And I wonder if the simply the, the, the shape of the body just signified more or signified in a different way from, from the baggage that the painting came to have as an artifact. It had its own reception, its own story, its own biography, Whereas the, the sculpture was, was more of a, a free-floating form that you could sort of insert and you know, allow to sort of signify on its own in, in different contexts. But I mean, yeah, that's just conjecture on my part. I like that idea. But, it, you know, I, one of the things that one, one of the ideas that your book led me to is that the reclining nude in the Watteau is a sculpture. And so maybe in his use of his own reclining nude aurora as a sculpture and painting after painting. Maybe Matisse is giving us a little hint as, as to a point of origin. Yeah, that's, that's a really nice point. 
and so he's he's looking at a, a painting of a sculpture in the Watteau. He's looking at the the Michelangelo sculpture. And I think also, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is his own real interest in sort of in what one might call intermedial experiments. You know, he was interested in moving from sculpture to painting to drawing and, and seeing how those things influenced each other. I think, both, you know, both physically and in terms of, of how they look. So the idea of working in the three dimensions also impacted on, on how he thought in, when he was producing a two-dimensional work. As much as I would delight in talking about Blue Nude all day, your book covers Matisse's entire life and career. So let's advance to Nice. The American discourse around Matisse's Nice paintings has long been unsure, questioning, uneasy. There's a certain discomfort, American discomfort, with with the beauty and even hedonism of, of the pictures. At a moment after World War I, when so many artists in Europe were turning to classicism, you note that Matisse did something slightly different. What was his aim in his paintings at Nice, and how did that remain in his work ever after, really? Well, I'm, I'm glad you've, you've raised the, the Nice period paintings, because they really fascinate me for, for all kinds of reasons. And partly, as you say, because of the strange critical reception that they've had, really, from, from the time when, when Matisse created them. So, I mean, by the time he goes to Nice, he, he first goes in the winter of 1917, and then settles there a little bit later. But he's produced by that stage, you know, some very big, very complicated, interesting, difficult works, as you mentioned, Blue Nude, but also Bathers by a River, which is in Chicago, or Bathers with Turtle. He'd done works for uh, Sergei Shukin that, that made their way to the Trebetskoy Palace in Moscow. It's almost like he closes himself in a hotel room, shuts the, puts the shutters up, and starts painting these strange little interiors, often featuring women reading or at leisure. And then he moves on to works that depict women dressed as odalisque, so, you know, a French word for a woman in a Turkish harem. And critics looked at this stuff and they said, well, you know what, he's gone mad. You know, one minute he's producing all of this big, difficult, you know, monumental work, and now he's creating these little naturalistic interiors. You know, they just didn't get it. Not only that, they were angry with him. And some people said, well, he's made it. He's producing works for a, for a market. These are small works. They're easily saleable. So, you know, he, he's just putting his feet up and making money. So Matisse is not coming out of this at all well. And then, as you rightly point out, this impacts on how he's being presented and, and really part of his history, how he's being presented in museums. You know, when Barr was at the head of, of MoMA, he, he hated these works. He didn't want to show them. He was embarrassed by them. He actually talked about the, you know, the idea that Matisse, he actually said, he actually wrote in one of the catalogues from, for MoMA that Matisse had really sort of become the master of a particular style. He was so confident he could just relax and, and, and get on with, with things that were easy for him. So all of this is added to sort of disparaging what has become referred to as the Nice period of, of Matisse's career. So one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to, to rethink that and to think about some potentially different interpretations of those works by reevaluating their sources and, and thinking about how they, how they functioned. You write about how you think Matisse was taking a conscious turn toward beauty, to emphasizing, playing up, celebrating beauty in, in, in the Nice pictures. 
could we think of that as an almost nationalistic beauty, as kind of using beauty and subjects from, you know, at least a hundred year old French tradition to both take his work in a new direction, but also to celebrate France's survival? I think that became something that, that influenced his later works. And I think that comes to the fore, particularly after the Second World War. I think the point I wanted to, to really show about beauty and really female experience in these works were, was, a, was a way in which Matisse turned to a different set of interests and influences. He was watching a lot of films. He was going to the cinema a lot at, at this part of his life. And Nice was, of course, the the home to the French film industry. So, I mean, it was like the Hollywood of, of France. There were lots of models. There were lots of aspiring actors and actresses. So he was interested in that sort of visual display and the artifice of, of film. And I think he you know, wanted to be part of that, that kind of idea of dressing up, of, of using costume, of, of, of thinking about the kinds of looks that women were being given and developing in film. So, and I think that that informs a lot of the, what, what's become known as the Orientalism of some of the works of the Nice period. So when he's painting those odalisques, he's painting French women dressing up in you know harem style clothes. I mean, it's it's like something. It's like some of these models have wandered off a film set. And I thought that was a really interesting source of inspiration for Matisse. And the other thing that I wanted to to bring out, you know, a lot of people have you know a lot of t- times these works get enfolded into a history of you know, women being objective misses a lot of what Matisse was doing and conveying in terms of the women's own agency in these works. You know, these are women who are who can be understood as enjoying fashion, dressing up. You know, he he was he, Matisse himself was looking at fashion magazines, haute couture, thinking about the the world of you know what is. Of course, we're talking in kind of gender stereotypes here. This these these were female interests being constructed by popular culture, but they're there nevertheless as a as source material for him. So looking at how women were using fashion to express themselves, to play with different identities and so on. And and I think that all of that is building in to these works. And I don't think that people understood that at the time. I don't think that audiences, even if they did understand it, valued it because they weren't going to value female interest in in fashion and, and silent movies. That wasn't really a, a subject for heroic art. So Matisse was actually, you know, you, you could think of Matisse as doing something quite daring in these in these images. I'm glad you brought up the Nice area film industry, both both here and in the book. I had not known that Matisse often visited, I don't know what you call them, the sets where movies were made, you know, film companies, whatever. I'm sure there's a terminology here. I don't know. And, and you also write that film appealed to his interest in, in seriality. How do you think those visits to film sets and the buildings and places where, where movies were made informed him? And, and how does that seriality or is that interest in seriality manifest itself in Matisse's paintings? So the, the studios that, that are set up in Nice were the, the Victorine studios. And yes, he actually did visit them. You know, there is some correspondence where he's actually writing to his wife, who's still in Paris, where he actually draws a little film set. 
it's it's a wonderful thing to see. So you know, he he's he's really interested in the the setup, the artificiality, and the way in which this whole you know world is being created and then transformed into into film. And there's a sense in which he did that. He mirrored that in his own studio setup. People have written about Matisse's studios, though it is a, a little film set. You know, he had textiles, he had his props, he had costumes. So he's always, even though he's working in very confined spaces, you know, this is a, a fantasy world of the imagination that's being fueled by the the types of things he's seeing going on at those Victorine studios. You know, that's that's the sort of mechanical side of it. Then comes the more interesting point, which which you raise about seriality. Ah, uh, you raised it about seriality. I merely oh, well. <laughs> repeated it. <laughs> There's no doubt that Matisse was also thinking about, you know, literally the film strip. So the film reel, the spool, as it unfolds and we see things as a sequence, as a set of images. And I think that appealed to him for two reasons. I think it appealed to him because he was interested himself in the seriality of art production. So in his own processes how does the hand move across the, the page? What happens when I finish one drawing and move on to the next one? How do I keep reworking a subject? So there's that aspect of it. And I think that that, that manifests itself particularly in his drawing practice. And certainly by 1942, we get the, the terrific work drawings theme where he takes a motif and then reworks it over and over again. He takes a sequence of motifs and does that. And that's very cinematic. And he actually talks about the cinema of his imagination. He talks about these things unfolding in his imagination and then transferring that onto the page. So that, that sequential, that, that process of, of image production and then seeing it, allowing us, the audience, to see that as the image emerges across a, a particular sequence, I think was something he was he was really interested in both phenomenologically and aesthetically. It also reminds me of a number of Nice-era paintings in which Matisse kind of riffs on de Hooks, where you are in a room looking through a doorway into another room, looking through a doorway into another room, looking through a doorway into another room, and this sense of movement that is both in kind of the Dutch paintings from the 17th century, but also that Matisse brings into the 20th century and the way he uses light and textiles and those doorways to activate space and to suggest movement through space. And maybe that isn't only about 17th century Dutch painting, but maybe also is about the way film works and the way people, actors, move through space and movies. Finally, inevitably, after an historian and an author does a life-spanning project about an artist such as yours, there are areas of the artist's life and career and production that jump out as overdue or of potential interest for further examination. So what kinds of possible nexts, either for yourself or for other historians, jumped out at you as you were worked on and finished this book? Well, I mean, the thing about Matisse is I think there are so many Matisses. There are different Matisses. Everyone has their own Matisse. There's the, you know, the Matisse of the Nice period that we've been talking about. There's the Matisse, you know, of the before the First World War. There's Matisse the sculptor, Matisse of the artist's books, you know, the late Matisse where he's doing, you know, cutouts and stained glass. There are so many things that, you know, you, you could continue to talk about and investigate. That is absolutely wonderful. 
I've been very interested in seeing some of the legacies of Matisse. I mean, that was something that I hinted at at the end of the book. I mentioned only, you know, a handful of examples of artists who have taken up and, and developed Matisse's ideas, his legacy, if you want. And I was really interested to see the Riffs and Relations show at the Phillips Collection last year, which I thought was was really wonderful in showing how different contemporary artists have taken inspiration from European modernism. And there was a section on Matisse, you know, that showed artists such as Taylor Pickett, working, you know, riffing on Matisse's interior with the Egyptian curtain that's also in the Phillips collection. You know, there are contemporary artists who are looking at Matisse's backs and, and thinking about them. I mentioned Ellen Gallagher's take on, on Matisse and the Nice interiors in, in a photograph that she's produced. So, I mean, I, I think that pursuing that interest that in, and cross-cultural interest in Matisse's work is is really interesting. I mean, the, the Rifts and Relations show focus very heavily on, you know, African-American artists looking at Matisse's work and dialoguing with them. And there are, there are really lots of other examples you could think of that could develop that topic. Personally, I'm, I'm very interested, you know, you talked about Blue Nude earlier. I'm, I'm interested in, in thinking further about that particular painting and, and unpacking some of its its stories. And I think there's still more to be done on, on Matisse and, and cinema. You know, I think that thinking, I, I've sort of scratched the surface on the influence of silent film on his works and the way in which that, that impacted on the Nice period stuff. And I think there's there's a lot more to be investigated there. So, I mean, it's it's wonderful that, you know, one person's work could could just lead to so many different trajectories and, and ideas. And, you, you know, you've got to hand it to him <laughs> on, on, for the, on that ground alone. You mentioned Adrian L. Childs's Riffs and Relations show at the Phillips. Childs was on the podcast last May, I think it was. We'll include a link to that show on the show page. Catherine Brown, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.